So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions, where we're going to be exploring high performance in hybrid teams. I hope you're safe wherever you are and that your team and your business are starting to see some green shoots of growth after the ravages and storms of COVID-19. Thanks to everyone who's been sharing the show in recent weeks with their friends, peers and even their internal learning departments at work. We really are thrilled to be helping more and more people with the mindset and leadership skills they need to thrive through these periods of uncertainty and pressure. Sadly, we're not born with these skills. We need to learn them and practice them. But when we grasp them, it absolutely transforms our enjoyment, our relationships and our results. I can absolutely vouch for that. I feel passionate about it because some days as a professional cricketer, I woke up thinking I could dominate and play well. And I did. I was relaxed, I was focused and I was playing it one moment at a time. And then yet just a few days later, I would feel like all my confidence had left me. Um, I wanted to be dropped or get injured so I wouldn't have to face that humility of failure on the big stage. And that mental shift was seismic and I didn't really understand what was causing it. So I think getting to learn about resilience and confidence and mindset and some of these psychological attributes of leaders creating the environment for people to thrive is something that I'm absolutely passionate about. And that's why I went on and studied so that I could help ambitious people in sport and business to overcome their biggest rival, and that's themselves. We all have that inner critic. And during times of change and pressure, that voice becomes deafening. So for me to be able to go inside the mind of these industry thought leaders and sporting champions and design something that helps thousands of people to navigate their daily challenges is an absolute joy. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you've tuned in today. There's lots of different pricing models around podcasts as they explode in popularity, but there's no fee here. I'm hoping to keep you that way for as long as I possibly can. And all I ask is that you share the show with those around you that you think could benefit. That's the, the sort of payment that I need. Um, the show costs a lot for me to produce and, and especially to do that week on week. So if you can help me to grow the show, it means I don't have to pack the timeline full of adverts telling you what vitamins to eat and where to do your shopping. So hopefully that deal of referring the show on to your friends and your network really works for you as well. I always like to pick out a review or an email that I've received in the last couple of weeks 
Um, and this note today that I wanted to celebrate was from George, who's one of our members, and he's got access to all of our digital library with about 800 of the coaching videos and strategies that we've been building to help people over the last 10 years. And George says, hi, Jeremy, I just wanted to say that I found exploring the members videos on resilience and handling pressure really so helpful during this busy time of balancing work, family and friends. I also found a specific video to show my friend who'd had an anxiety attack and it really helped her immensely. Many thanks, George. Well, that's brilliant for us to read. The team at Sporting Edge will be absolutely thrilled with that. Uh, and thanks so much, George, for that feedback. It's great to hear that you've been able to search and find these focus strategies from the high performers and you can relate to them and your friend can relate to them as well because ultimately we're all human performers trying to do our best and I think we all face pressure whatever it might be whether you're pitching your business for a sale or whether you're speaking in the boardroom for the first time or whatever it might be a, a you know a student doing your exams it's all about pressure and understanding how we react to that. So if anyone's listening and you want to dive into a free month's membership using the podcast code podcast100 uh, in the checkout at sportingedge.com forward slash membership, I promise uh, you won't be charged anything or hounded down with loads of marketing and sales materials. Please just take that next step at sportingedge.com forward slash membership. It's a pioneering new coaching experience all delivered digitally with short videos and practical tools that you can apply straight away. Our content over the last 10 years has supported thousands of execs, elite sports coaches and entrepreneurs around the world. We've helped businesses like Barclays, BMW, Herbalife, Namura. So loads of big companies use our content. So please do go over to sportingedge.com and take a look at how you can use it for yourself. So today's key theme is around how do we build high performance into this new challenge of hybrid working and some of the content comes from a recent webinar that I ran for one of our corporate clients and we're going to touch on elements like embracing change, being able to reset the goals and expectations in our team as we start to come back into the office, thinking about our personal impact and, and reconnecting at an emotional level with our teams which is going to be absolutely critical to building that trust as a foundation of the communication and collaboration that we need. We've got experts from elite sport, from business, from academia, so a real mix of insights today. Here's a taster of what's to come. Change isn't something to be feared and coped with, it's something to be embraced, it's part of life. When you set your mission or goal, you've got to make it special. I believe, whether you're dealing with young people or athletes or systems, people need to know where they stand. One of the most important things to consider is the formation of a trust-based relationship with your colleagues. So if we create a sense of belonging and a sense of trust and a shared vision and a shared identity, all of these things, it actually motivates people, it reduces anxiety, it makes them you know, experience more dopamine, more oxytocin, some of these hormones which are going to be more favourable to unlock their performance. So I know we've got people listening from all over the world and we're all at different stages. We've shared this same pandemic with COVID-19, but we're all at different stages in, uh, you know, getting out of lockdown. I remember from a British perspective, mid-March 2020 was the time when Boris Johnson said we need to put our lives on hold and, and go into lockdown. And, and I realistically thought that it was going to be 
two to three weeks out of the office. I think that was realistic. Everyone grabbed their stuff and, you know, family pictures and, and um, you know, keyboards and, and notepads and various things, client folders. Uh, and we dashed off um, to our homes. And, and you know, from mid-July 2021, um, we had this great Freedom Day, as it was called at the time, when the restaurants and festivals and uh, large gatherings were allowed back. And, and that period was really turbulent in between that. And now, even in mid-October, we've got, you know, uncertainty and change still around us and some of the pressures. So it's something that's gripped the world and, and something that's affected us emotionally and very personally with our families and our our own mindsets and mental health but also a challenge for our businesses how do we go from having these high-rise office blocks that occupy city centers and expensive real estate to think about people working from home and actually many companies have, have spoken about how productive their remote teams have been and how people working from home have done brilliantly we know it's affected different age groups differently maybe you know the more mature adults and families that live out in suburbia with a bit more space and a bit more support around them have maybe found it slightly different to those crammed into a a shared flat with everyone trying to get to the kitchen table to do their work and and those sort of stressful environments might not have been so easy and of course we've got the layer of family commitments, homeschooling for children and, and maybe caring for people with the virus or other um, you know, medical illnesses through this period as well as the, as the medical services have been stretched. So a really challenging time for people to try and navigate this at an individual level, a family level and also at a business level. And I can see that as we start to move back through this hybrid working environment where, where there is the opportunity for people to come into the workspace and to work from home in some kind of balance. We've got some forerunners starting to say, well, we're just gonna go back the way it was. Uh, I saw Goldman Sachs made a big announcement from financial services that they're gonna be back in nine to five. Um, And I know some of our clients in the financial services have followed them. And then there are other clients that we've got in the banking sector that have looked for a more flexible approach. So even within that one industry sector, there's variation. And then we can see that you know, lots of different companies have got uh, a hybrid model. I saw that the head of uh, Unilever's HR was talking about make sure that, yes, you can go and live regionally uh, or, or in a slightly different warmer climate if you want to, but you need to be within striking distance of a major meeting if you if you can get back within, I don't know, six to eight hours uh, with, with a short notice to get to a meeting the next day, then that's really important. So going to live in some remote desert island might not be practical as we start thinking about, you know, people working from home or this hybrid model. And then we've got other companies that have said, well, actually, you know, we're a, a cloud-based solution. We can, you know, recruit, anyone can log into our systems from anywhere in the world. So feel free to be not just Uh, regionally remote but actually globally remote and that seems great that you can go and live on a a desert island as long as you've got wi-fi if you work for particular companies the benefit that that brings for the organization is that they can you know move down to a sort of smaller hot desking type option uh, if that's what suits them but they've actually got talent that they can recruit from anywhere in the world now and i guess the challenge is that when somebody's been on a 
a high salary from one of the big metropolitan centres like London or New York or, or Paris or, or wherever that might be. And then they move out to, I don't know, somewhere more exotic. Uh, you can imagine Hawaii or the Caribbean or whatever it might be. Then, then they're not commuting. They're working completely remotely. And that means that any talent can be recruited in from anywhere. So we know that there are some highly skilled individuals and, and workforce solutions that are international in different geographies that may be much cheaper at a headcount uh, and head cost. So it throws up a whole new level of questions for an organisation when they think about where their talent's going to be recruited from, how they're going to manage them and um, you know all those different elements. So very interesting to think what your current model is. Maybe you could drop me a line through to hello at sportingedge.com. We've been uh, doing some interesting research around this as a business and trying to support people with all the different models, whether it's back in the office full time. I've spoken at a few conferences recently where they've brought the whole team back together and, you know, speaking in front of 200 or 300 people, um, you know, there's been social drinks and all the rest of it. And they're back as as it was, which is great to see. And then we've also got some people that are working completely remotely, and that's the decision that's been made. I think for me, it makes sense to see this as an experiment and maybe a, a six month phase that people um, execute and then review, just like any part of high performance. I think we can't be stubborn about decisions that we've made and we've got to be prepared to to change those. So change is a constant and I think this is a, a great place to start whether we're looking at an individual level or as a corporate level and the first insight is from international change leader and and, and award-winning author Campbell McPherson his book The Change Catalyst is great and I've got to work with Campbell on a few occasions and his insights in our members club are fascinating and this particular one around change I think gets us off to a good start this is Campbell McPherson. Change is not a one-off event. That, that's, I, I realised that when I was uh, uh, running a workshop actually at Henley Business School when I put up the top 10 reasons why change fails and then suddenly someone said there's an 11th and I thought that's really annoying, the book is already in print. There's 11th for, and it's, we, keep, we treat change as though it's a one-off and that is so true. It's a theme that runs, runs through the book. If you just treat change as a one-off, then it will come back again. It won't actually, it won't even succeed the first time, but you need to create a culture of continuous change where change is normal. Change isn't something to be feared and coped with. It's something to be embraced. It's part of life. We talked about before the, the, the change curve, the roller coaster of emotions. That doesn't go away once you've gone up the other slide. The next change will come along and the change curve will be with you. We are forever going through changes in our lives that we will have to go go back to the curve. So so it's treating change like a one-off is an absolute disaster. So what we have to do is to embed a culture of, of, of transformation in the organization continually. So I think one of the challenges for us is that these big transitions, working remotely, uh, moving country, they have a deadline and a, a sort of a dead end, if you like, and the pressure and the emotion builds up against those timelines and and that can cause quite a lot of turbulence for us but what I love about Campbell's insight there is that we need to see ourselves as constantly evolving constantly adapting in the environment and taking on new change we've moved to different schools we've moved to universities or we've moved across different businesses we've perhaps moved countries and traveled and worked abroad 
all of these examples as well as those personal elements of maybe being married and, and maybe having children or maybe losing a loved one will all be able to relate to some of these massive changes that have gone in our lives. Um, but when we're faced with something about moving departments or moving desks or moving across a particular you know, business to, to the company next door, they seem like enormous changes because so much of our identity is wrapped up in it. You know, I am uh, a footballer. I am, uh, you know, I do work for this this particular brand and I've seen myself in that position all the time. So these transitions can be a little bit messy and a bit painful, but we just need to see them as the latest step in the adventure. And it's not where the change happens to us that, that is, you know, the, the relative thing. It's it's actually how quickly we can get through it. So as an individual, if we're moving between these change cycles, almost like a staircase, if you visualize it, that we almost have to go in, you know, almost a step back before we step up to the next level of performance. And while we can be defensive and resistant and try and fight the change that's happening, either from an emotional or a, you know, communication standpoint that we're really trying to protest against this new software or this new change in the business structure or whatever it might be. A lot of these changes are inevitable and, and certainly COVID has forced the, the size and the pace of change to be much greater than we've seen it in recent years. So the thing that we're all sharing across the world is this reorganization. We're hearing companies saying they're rethinking their strategy, they're reimagining everything, they're, you know, bringing in transformation from the inside out. And, and that can be quite scary when you've defined your identity and your self-esteem against working in a particular way. But if we're all experiencing and across all of our industry sectors that, that I've supported, everyone's talking about it, how technology's disruption, different, different business models, different ways of working. So then the relative thing is how quickly can we accelerate through these change cycles relative to our competitors? Or how quickly can I, as an individual, embrace these new working practices relative to the people that I'm competing against for promotion or whatever that might be? And that starts to make us feel like we're more in control. We're less powerless, less helpless in this massive machine that we just feel like a tiny, irrelevant cog in. And actually, we do take on that mindset of being the CEO of our own performance company and stepping forward and saying, okay, well, every choice I'm going to make along this pathway is going to be faster and stronger and help me to experiment better and, and find a new solution quicker than all of my rivals. And when we aggregate that, of course, across all of our staff and that mindset becomes part of our DNA, then we can move really quickly as a business and outcompete our rivals and exploit new opportunities that have undoubtedly sprung up in the market. So I think one of the key things for leaders to do is to celebrate the changes that we've had in the past as teams, as businesses, uh, to show how we've been resilient and actually got back stronger than we've ever been before. And also drill down into the lives of these individuals that are in our teams to say, you know, when I think about you, you, you joined the company three years ago, you've moved into this role and that trip you had abroad where you presented those, you know, at that conference, that was a massive change for you. And you've been able to navigate that. These skills that you've been, they've almost been silently creeping up on you. And we've developed these skills and these abilities over the last few years. But but 
we're just looking at this big abrupt change in front of us and getting paralyzed by it. But we actually don't look back in the rear view mirror and see how far we've traveled to see how many strengths we've accumulated, to see how much re resilience we've developed from the setbacks that we've had. So I think a, a great coaching um, opportunity and technique is to look back into the timeline of the individuals in our team and, and show the characteristics that they've developed that have perhaps gone under the radar and they're definitely going to be needed as we move into this next stage of disruption and, and transformation within our organisation. So I think one of the first things that our leaders can do when we bring our team back into the office or you know we, we start to make this hybrid model more concrete in the way we're going to we're going to operate is to make sure that we reset those inspirational goals. We, we reset the reason why this team exists. And the first insight is from the England rugby coach that I had the great privilege of working alongside Eddie Jones. And I think the way he transformed English rugby from losing, um, you know, shamefully in, in the sort of early stages of the World Cup at home and then winning 18 games in a row with the same squad largely showed that he was able to create this inspirational and transformational goal for people. So our next insight is from Eddie Jones. When you set your mission or goal, you've got to make it special. Yeah, you've got most people in life, if they're going to give more than just the normal day-to-day uh, effort. They want to be part of something special. They want to be part of something that that changes the way either they're perceived or the way their sport's perceived or the way their team's perceived. And I think if you can do that, then then you get more effort from the players. So I think setting a, a special goal, not something that's, you know, we're going to win the competition. You know, everyone wants to win the competition. It's, it's adding something extra to that. And obviously you've got to be creative to do that. But that's part of the challenge of leadership. So maybe you're bringing your team back from working at home for a long period of time and back into the office. You've decided that you're going to you know, have particular days of the week. Maybe it's two to three days a week or maybe it's the full week that, that you want people to be back in into that working culture. So it's not just changing where they work. It's about refocusing everybody around that key goal that's going to be important. So what I love about Eddie's insight is that transformational quality, the excitement, that motivational fuel that it's bringing, that yes, the last 18 months have been incredibly tough, brutal for many organisations, but actually we're going to take you to higher ground. You know, we've got this beautiful imagery of what the vision and the goal looks like. What will it feel like to be there? What will people be saying about our organization? What will people be saying about you as an individual and you as a leader when you take your team to this higher ground? Almost immersing yourself in what it feels like to be there is what gives you that connection and that visualization of success. And then we can get people to say, yes, I can see that that's possible. And then, of course, we need to zoom down to those individual roles and goals that are going to make that climb up to the top of the mountain possible. And there's a few different elements here that, again, the, the sort of machine needs tightening up the nuts and bolts of alignment and uh, role clarity need to be in place. So if we think, first of all, at an individual level, you can imagine a one to one between a coach and a performer or a, uh, a leader in a business and their direct reports that, we need to be clear about what this role is. You know, this person is here to achieve this particular goal, these particular outputs, and, and these are the, um, you know, elements that need executing as part of that specific contract. 
what we often do is tell people this is what's expected, but we don't get them to necessarily agree or accept it apart from their, their signature on the contract. But I think at an emotional level, when we say to people, this is where we need to get to as a team, this is why your role is so important. This is the kind of skills that we expect. And these are the deliverables. These are the outputs. Do you accept that those are the elements that are going to help us to get to the next stage? What else do you see? When people start to fine tune and, and take ownership and, and get sort of contribute towards that role. Well, you know, I, I hear we need to get to there. I, I might need some extra resource here or I might be able to do it this way. Or can I bring in this style of you know, an approach to, to get that job done. If that's the output that you want, if that's the intent, then let me deliver that my way through these two or three different factors. And when people have that ability to contribute and shape the role and how they're going to go about the work, that autonomy brings about more empowerment and more commitment as a result. So that's how we get our individuals involved. And, and a key question here is, why is this role so important? And when people can see that their role is critical to achieving that goal as we climb and ascend the mountain, then that really gives them that motivational fuel, not just with the nuts and bolts and the clarity of what's expected, but why it's so important for them to, you know, deliver at full pace and full intensity so that we can, you know, they can deliver their part in that high performance model. The next stage is that, you know, again, if we're working remotely, it's very easy to have one to ones with each individual, yet not create that shared mental model and that ability to see what everyone's interdependencies are, because that's absolutely critical to a high performing team, whether you're in sport or business. We need to know that we've not left the roles too far apart so that people are dropping the ball in between. And we need to know that we've not had such vague communication that everyone picks up a project and starts doing it their own way and we get massive duplication and wasted time. So knowing where each role scope starts and finishes is absolutely critical. And this is where you can imagine in a face-to-face -face environment, it would work really well, but we can do it virtually with our hybrid teams that we set the intent of this is where we need to get to with this project. It's going to be an inspirational place to be. This is the impact it's going to have. Everyone knows their individual roles. And then they go around in sequence and talk about where their role starts and stops and what they can be, um, you know, left to deliver for the team. And it's when people start to explain how each of those different roles independently work, interdependently, then that's when we start to see that overall mindset and that shared mental model, if you like, of how the team's going to operate. And what we're also doing, as well as the sort of mechanical elements of the organisation, what we're also getting is that social contract, that social bond that's been made because my teammates looked me in the eye and said that they're going to deliver the procurement or the recruitment or they're going to keep the cost down, or they're going to bring the creativity, or they're going to de develop the latest piece of technology. Whatever it might be that are the component parts of that project, we all know what we're all accountable for now, and, and that mutual accountability allows us to work together efficiently and with huge commitment. And when we align our individual roles, our small team roles, and the overall team roles towards that strategic intent that we heard from Eddie Jones, that high level goal, that's when we really start to motor towards those inspirational quests that we've set out as leaders. One of the insights that you might have heard from a previous episode is from 
one of the race engineers in Formula One that speaks about every department around the organisation contributing to reducing the lap time of the Formula One car. So whether you're in aerodynamics or you're in the sponsorship department trying to get more revenue in to get better engineers and better technology, maybe you're in logistics and you're helping each of the parts to be flown around the world more efficiently to get to the race car for the weekend. Maybe you're in legal to protect some of the IP uh, or maybe you're in operations or the pit crew just making sure that every one of these transitions moves smoothly around the performance of the car. So everyone waking up in the morning thinking that their job is to work in their local team or their department whether they're hybrid working remotely whether they're offshore or whether they're working face-to-face in the pit crew on race day everyone's job is to reduce the lap time of the car and I quite like that singular focus that if we can get to that uh, you know that's the ideal we've got that inspirational goal but it's also that singular goal that everyone's role aligned to. Now I've worked with lots of matrix organizations where it's a lot more complex than that but I think if we've all got that line of sight between what we do and uh, the impact that we have then that can definitely help to bring clarity, teamwork and motivation. So once we've set these expectations in terms of the individuals and the interdependencies in our team We then need to make sure that we've got some consequences or or clear sort of rules in place to make sure that people stay committed and and don't go the wrong side of the line. And a great insight is from Baroness Sue Campbell, where she explains how coaches can tighten up this expectation, this high level of challenge to make sure that we're all compliant to what's needed to get the job done. Well, I, I, I believe whether you're dealing with young people or athletes or systems, People need to know where they stand. They might not like you for it all the time, but they need to know where the line is in the, in the sand. And I think that's about really clear communication. You know, if you've really communicated very clearly that this side of the line's okay, on the line's a bit dodgy, this side of the line's not acceptable, and you've checked and you've made sure everybody gets that, and then someone steps over that line, I think they have to understand there are consequences to that. And I, I, you know, I, I call it compassion without sentimentality. You know, when it comes to those decisions, I'm afraid, you know, the answer is you've got to accept responsibility here. And this is the consequences of that. And I don't think we do that sometimes rigorously enough with some of our athletes. We don't want to upset them. We don't want to offend them. You know, well, they might not like it. You know, it might mean they're a bit stroppy next time. I don't accept any of that. If you know where that line is and you step over it, there are consequences. We'd, we'd do that with our youngsters in schools. I think we'd have to do it with our athletes. So I think Sue's great point there reinforces the importance of clarity of the consequences. And, and while it can feel quite difficult to have those challenging conversations about consequences, I think the courage that we need at the front end of that timeline can save us a whole lot of pain Uh, confusion, duplication, emotion and and conflict down the line if we've been clear about this is in scope and that's out of scope. This is the role and that's not the role. This is the way to do it and this is not the way to do it. And I think every time we get the chance to make that clear up front, it's going to help us much later down the line. So we've got to get that courage and focus early on. 
But the next thing that I think's become very vague is this scope creep of our working hours. You know, I think for many of us, it was nine to five, maybe longer than that. Uh, that might be what was in the HR contract, but lots of people work longer hours than that anyway. But um, I saw some interesting research from Microsoft looking at the volume change or the percentage change in uh, use of the chat function in the middle of 2020 when the pandemic was kicking off. And uh, you could see from that that even at eight o'clock in the morning, there was a massive 23% uplift in the amount of people using chat, 17% uplift at nine o'clock. And then that nine to five was extended out by just more volume of use, which you would expect with people working remotely. But then six, seven and eight o'clock had still got 20, between 15 and 20% uplift. And sometimes later on into the nine, 10 o'clock, 10 and 11 o'clock at night, there was still a 10% uplift in the chat function use. So our days have definitely got longer, whether people were using it socially in the evenings for those uh, office quizzes or social quizzes that, that seem to be happening, especially early on, I'm not sure. But we've definitely had extended working hours um, over the last 18 months as people have started to, to work longer. So we need to reassess those roles. That's clearly okay for a week to get to a deadline, a month to hit a year end or whatever that might be. But we can't be relentless. We have to be, think of our energy and managing our energy. So we need to be more resilient and have these phases of working hard and then hard recovery. And that's going to be absolutely critical. And that's not going to come from working from seven or eight in the morning right through to 10 o'clock every working day. So I think we've got to be careful that these little loops and, and routines that we got into didn't form into hard habits that now have been set as expectations in the workplace. Because I think previously, before the pandemic, if you worked near a big city, you perhaps had an hour commute at the beginning and end of every day. And that helped you to psych yourself up for the challenges ahead and also to act as a buffer as you sort of phase back into the family environment after the stresses and strains of your day. So those commutes were long and, and arduous and frustrating, but they gave it an important part of the day as well. When we moved into uh, the pandemic, into lockdown, some of you may even still be in this, that you've moved from having an, an hour long commute into commuting from the spare bedroom to the uh, kitchen table to do your work. So just a matter of seconds. And then we can have these hugely extended days where we're still working from seven in the morning and, as we just mentioned, going on till much later in the evening. So I think as we start to consider this hybrid approach where some days we might be in the office and some days we might be working at home, we've got to consider how we're actually going to break up the rhythm of our working day at home so that we may be um, using different kind of um sort of areas where we sit maybe we're in the kitchen for a while we're in a spare bedroom for a while we're in a comfortable chair for a while while we're thinking a bit more creatively we're out for a walk um, you know we're spending a bit of downtime with family during the day there's some time for exercise so we've got quite a varied day um, under our own control in our own environment making sure that we're available for those key meetings when when we need to be online and collaborating with the team but then importantly, as we come back into the workplace, we've got to think about the main benefits of that. Now, if all we're going to go and do is, is do detailed individual work that we were going to do at home, then that's not giving as much of the benefits of being back in that collaborative and social space. So 
I think we need to make sure that we've got on those days work together with our network to make sure that there's collaborative brainstorming, problem solving, creativity sessions. Maybe there's one to one meetings that are going to take place at certain stages in the day for you because that ability to build trust and have that empathic one to one time is going to be absolutely, uh, you know, massively different in in the physical presence of somebody rather than being virtually on a call. So I think one to one time is another great benefit. And then, of course, having those social drinks, going out for a meal, connecting informally. Uh, that's also a great part of, of building those days when we are back in the office. And then, of course, we've got the the commute either side of that. So I think we've got to be very conscious of what we're trying to do to make ourselves as productive as possible when we're either working from home or we're working remotely. And of course, those natural productivity type hacks, whether it's the you know to-do list of five priorities, the Pomodoro technique where you've got a certain amount of time, 50 minutes on, 10 minutes off uh, every hour. It could be batching that you're doing your emails or your spreadsheets at different times so they're using you know the same parts of your brain and then using those task switches to bring in a different part of your brain something more visual listening to music or being more collaborative or as I mentioned just sitting in a different place in the house can really help you to be more productive and then managing that time and and engineering that environment for yourself when you're back in the workplace so that you are being productive and resilient, not just relentless, working from the beginning of the day to the end of the day on the same task. We've got to make sure that we're setting some clear personal boundaries and we've got to make sure that we're communicating. So, um, for example, um, people working remotely might mean that senior leaders are working late at night after they've put the kids to bed, for example. That was something that that Microsoft research showed that at seven, eight, nine o'clock, there were higher peaks in the chat function. Maybe it is that the senior leaders are sending emails at that time of night because their kids are in bed, it's gone quiet. That doesn't mean that the rest of the people that have had a a more traditional uh, sort of daily working routine now have to start working again at 10 o'clock. So just because it's convenient for the senior leader to send the emails at that time doesn't mean that they expect everyone to be working on it. So again, just setting out those communications, those expectations that don't worry, this is for tomorrow. Maybe there's a little code word at the top top, or not urgent or for tomorrow, whatever that might be in the title of the email that just gives people permission to switch off. Maybe they'll have the phone switched off anyway, so they won't see it. So that's all fine. Um, But we really need to think about our resilience, not just being relentless as we start this new phase of work and actually being creative and, and setting ourselves up and also giving ourselves time to adjust to it. I've worked with a number of businesses that have brought people back into the office and there's a level of anxiety. There's a level to level of uh, sort of insecurity around what it's going to be like, uh, what's expected, the commute, you know, being in close proximity to people after we've been socially distancing. You know, all of these things take time. But as we heard from Campbell at the beginning, we are used to changing all the time. So, so we've got to you know, go easy on ourselves and allow ourselves to adapt and learn from these new environments. But another consideration that I wanted to share comes from Kirk Vallis, who's the global head of creative capability development at Google. And he talks about the kind of working environment that is in place when we come back into the office. And he compares and contrasts two very different styles uh, where collaboration 
and independent work are favoured in, in different proportions. And I know for many of our clients, they've actually kitted out the office space. They've taken away a lot of the desks and they've got much more collaborative space for when people are working together in the environment. But I think Kirk's um, insight around how to manage that from a human perspective is really interesting for us to consider. I have an interesting point of view when it comes to um, cultures for expansive thinking and analytical thinking, if you like. And I think you've either got a culture that's opt-in or opt-out, and neither is bad, but it's about recognising which one you've got and then doing something about it. So I used to work in the world of media, so Sky TV, Capital Radio, etc. And I would say they were naturally quite opt-out, opt-out environments. So what I mean by that is the hustle and bustle. You couldn't sit at your desk and either the radio is on or the TV's on or people are just shouting at each other, really positive collaborations. You'd be on the phone talking to somebody about something you're working on and you'd get off the phone and somebody would go, oh, I had that issue last week myself. I got a perspective on that. The the collision, the, the, the environment for natural collision and expansive thinking was 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 ever present. If you wanted to get away from that and do something that was a bit more focused or analytical and a bit more reductive, dare I say, in, in thinking, you would have to opt opt out of that. At Google and in the tech world, I, I think is has has a bit of this. It's a bit more contemplative and the work, natural work that people do, whether that's coding um, or deep thinking. What that does has led to is a bit of a culture where essentially your desk space is, is quite a focused zone. And it's not bad at all. But what it does mean is, now the, the only downside for me is that it, it means that if you want those collisions of fresh perspectives and to collide your ideas with other people to help improve them, you have to be really conscious of that because you have to make time for it and make it happen. Um, and on a personal level, I think that's harder to do as an organization and uh, Companies that I see like Google do it brilliantly, um, so it works really well for them. But unless you've, but unless you can be all in to force and allow that to happen at scale with investment in spaces where people can go to, all of that kind of stuff, then you're probably better off creating an opt opt out culture where it naturally happens because people will go and naturally find time to get reductive, to get stuff done, and move and move on. So again, a really interesting insight. And I think we've all learned so much about what we need to be at our very best. Do we need that open, creative, collaborative noise and bustle that's going on where we're picking up on different ideas and contributing? Or do we need that deep focus time to do our independent tasks and, and make sure that we're managing our day of when we come in and out of those noisy environments? I think we've got to try and find the best blend of both being in that open plan office collaborative space and the deep focus that independent remote working or working quietly in a quieter place in the office brings. So I think that's up to us to be the CEO of our own performance company and make sure that we're, um, you know, finding those optimum environments to work in. And I think many of us have talked about, um, you know, these the, the benefits of working remotely, but it, but it's also weakened some of those social networks and and that sense of belonging that we have with our organizations. And I know for any leader who's trying to maintain the culture uh, of the organization or trying to fast track new recruits into this way of being, 
it's very difficult to do that remotely. So Owen Eastwood's recent Mastermind uh, episode, I think you probably find really fascinating on this particular topic. But this insight from him on his new book called Belonging really gives us an insight into where this primal need to be connected in small teams and groups comes from and why it's just as relevant today. Belonging is hardwired into you know, being human. And I had some fascinating conversations with people like Professor Robin Dunbar at Oxford University, who's a world famous evolutionary psychologist. And they explained to me that actually, you know, going back three million years or so, we were one of the primate species that left the jungle and came into the open lands and the grasslands, probably for climatic reasons. And when we were in the jungles, we were able to forage. It wasn't that hard to find food. We didn't have to be that cooperative. In fact, we're quite independent, as a lot of primates are still, who are based in the jungle. But we decided to do something very different, come into the open grasslands. And there we were at a physiological disadvantage to a lot of other competitors and predators in that environment. And what we quickly realised is that our survival and our security and our ability to compete in that environment was going to be determined by how strong we were as a group, um, how we would work together and take care of each other. So our need to belong was always um, an expression of that brutal reality. And for all of human history, and I would say even now, if you are not part of a group, if you feel isolated or rejected or, or alone, then your health and ultimately your mortality will suffer as a result of that. So it's still very much part of who we are today. So this need to belong is expressed through anxiety actually, is that when we come into a new group we feel these high levels of anxiety and that has a profound impact on our behaviour. Um, we can't really be ourselves. we're certainly not thriving. We're looking for acceptance, we're looking for signals around us to say that this is okay. You're accepted, you belong and you can trust. But sometimes those signals don't come and we stay in this high anxiety state. So for me, when I'm working with you know, high performing teams, what we must try and do is there's enough anxiety and stress in the context of performing. So what we must do is in, in, insulate as much as we possibly can from, from self-generated anxiety. So if we create a sense of belonging and a sense of trust and a shared vision and a shared identity, all of these things, it actually motivates people, it reduces anxiety, it makes them you know, experience more dopamine, more oxytocin, some of these hormones which are going to be more favourable to unlock their performance. So we've spoken about the mechanical nuts and bolts of people's roles and goals and how that all fits together to deliver a project or a strategy. But what Owen's encouraging us to look at here is this emotional connection between people, this sort of primal ancient need to be part of a group that helps us to survive but it also helps us to thrive from a well-being perspective and certainly from a performance perspective. So do your teammates feel like they belong to this brand, this identity that you've created, this story that everyone's living out at the moment as part of your business? Are they comfortable being themselves? Are they respected for their personal differences? Are they valued for their contribution and their efforts? Do people really feel like they're at ease in the workplace or do they feel like they're on edge constantly having to prove themselves and they may be judged or shamed if they make a mistake or say the wrong thing. It's very easy for us also just to help the superstars in our team to feel like they're at the centre of attention but often there are people 
that don't bring the revenue. They're in the processing, the legal, the procurement. They're doing the work in the shadows that allows the, the superstars in our team to shine. Do we really make those people feel like they're appreciated and central to the team as well? Or is it just those that make the headlines and bring in all the sales? These are fundamental questions for us around the emotional belonging connection to our team. So one of the challenges that we have with a hybrid organisation is we might have eight or ten people sitting in a central office that are live in person debating and, and having a laugh and a joke before the meeting starts. And we might have four or five people sitting remotely that are dialing in. How does that remote minority feel? Do they feel like they're valued? There's a great insight here from Professor Tammy Erickson from London Business School about how to create trust in these teams. One of the most important things to consider is the formation of a trust-based relationship with your colleagues. So take the initiative as an individual to get to know the people on your team and ask yourself whether you've got the kind of relationship with them where they feel safe, uh, and you feel safe and you're going to share ideas freely. Uh, research into teams that work well has shown that one of the strongest correlates of that is actually equal talking time. So when your team gets together, pay attention to how the dialogue goes in terms of the amount of time each member speaks. If you are in a situation where one person is talking all the time and very few other people are, you're not in a very effective team. And if you've got any way to influence that, to be able to maybe say, hey guys, let's step back and, and think about this and create a, an idea, a platform where everybody's ideas can come forward, that can be one really effective way. One of the things that I teach when I work with the uh, uh, master's degree students at London Business School, young people just starting out in their careers, is I encourage them to form a formal team contract at the beginning of their time together as a team. So sit down and talk about things like that. We're all going to have equal talking time. Or how will you make decisions as a team? Is it going to be a vote and you'll largest number wins or are you going to continue to debate until you reach a consensus? What, what's going to be your process? What are your expectations? What are the kinds of penalties that you're going to put in place for people who let the team down? Teams have to be self-managing in that sense. And so talking about those issues in a forthright way and coming to an agreement, particularly before an issue arises, can make a huge difference in team effectiveness. So how we set up these hybrid meetings is going to be critical to getting this sense of belonging and this sense of being valued, that everyone feels the same, whether you're in the room in the office or whether you're dialing in remotely. And it's these micro behaviours and the way we structure things that is absolutely critical. We know that if we don't give somebody eye contact in the room, for example, and we look at the 10 other people, then they'll feel excluded. And it's exactly the same. I had this challenge with a recent webinar that I ran uh, for a US-based pharma company and they've got about 30 people in the 
office they were bringing them back into the workplace so there was that group that were all there and then there were I think four or five people dialing in from remote locations still part of the same team but they were dialing in from Europe so I needed to make sure that when we were using the chat function and I was breaking them out into some kind of facilitated discussion for them to explore in their groups that, that I went to the chat function first to to almost put them on a, a on a sort of a, a pedestal you know what do the people think remotely I've got a great question here from Stephen in the chat that's going to ask the group about this and and we use that chat function from the remote dial-ins to be on an equal footing with the comments that were coming in the room so I think we've got to manage these hybrid kind of situations to make sure that everyone feels the same clarity, the same contribution and the same level of engagement and respect wherever they're sitting around the world. So I think as we draw today's episode to a close, we need to make sure that we seize this opportunity to become better teams than we've ever been before. The nine to five workday was a relic from the Industrial Revolution when we all clocked in and out of our factories. But many roles now rely on a balance between creative problem solving and deep focused work. And we need to leverage global talent networks and the increasing use of technology. So we don't have to be in the same place all clocking in and out at the same time. We've all got our own personal motivations. We've all got our best times of the day. We've all got our best styles of collaborating and doing this deep focused work. So we've got to have these open conversations that allow this almost a blank sheet of paper to be rewritten in a way that focuses on productivity and impact and not just busyness. I really hope you found this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions useful for you at this particular time. Please do feel free to share it around your organisation so we can keep the conversation going. And as I mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, if you take two minutes to activate your free one month's members pass to our digital coaching experience, then you'll be binge watching legendary coaching strategies from all over the world. Some incredible sports coaches, some neuroscientists, academic leaders, business strategists. There's some incredible people there all talking about well-being and, and personal productivity as well. So don't worry about Squid Games and Game of Thrones. This is the video library that will both entertain and inspire you to achieve more in your career. So Just activate that membership using that code PODCAST100 and I'm sure you'll absolutely love being part of that membership. I've received quite a few questions through which I'm going to use in the micro lessons in the coming weeks. So if you want to send a question through that I can answer with some of the expert insight from our library, then you can either email me hello at sportingedge.com or send me a voice file and I'll actually use that recording in the show as I try and answer your tough interrogative questions. So I hope you've enjoyed the session. Please keep having those conversations about creating the perfect environment for your hybrid team. And I really hope you can continue to deliver great success. Thanks for listening today and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.